Appendix 4. The State of the Dead According to Leading Authorities. The Celebrated Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. No biblical text authorizes the statement that the soul is separated from the body at the moment of death. That's from Volume 1, page 802. The distinctive ideas of the Old Testament by Norman Snaith, I quote, No passage in the Old Testament speaks of any immortality of the soul, which is not a biblical idea at all. Note that the Evangelical Alliance meeting in 1846 listed in its faith statement belief in the immortality of the soul. In the book Christian Words and Christian Meanings by John Burnaby, I quote, Greek philosophers had argued that the dissolution which we call death happens to nothing but bodies, and that the souls of men are by their native constitution immortal. The Greek word for immortality occurs only once in the New Testament, and there it belongs to none but the King of Kings. The immortality of the soul is no part of the Christian creed, just as it is no part of Christian anthropology to divide soul and body and confine the real man, the essence of personality, to supposedly separable soul for which embodiment is an imprisonment. Jesus taught no doctrine of everlasting life for disembodied souls, such as no Jew loyal to the faith of his fathers could possibly have accepted or even understood. But Jewish belief was in the raising of the dead at the last day. That's from Christian Words and Christian Meanings by John Burnaby. The Companion Bible by E. W. Bullinger on 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, I quote, It is little less than a crime for anyone to pick out certain words and frame them into a sentence, not only disregarding the scope and context, but ignoring the other words in the verse and quote the words absent from the body, present with the Lord, with a view of dispensing with the hope of the resurrection, which is the subject of the whole passage in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14, as though it were unnecessary, and as though present with the Lord is obtainable without the resurrection. In other words, Paul is discussing here obtaining the new body at the resurrection and being present with the Lord via that resurrection. One can only be with the Lord at the second coming, not before. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17, Thus we will be always with the Lord. In the book Law and Grace by Professor A. F. Knight, I quote, in the Old Testament, man is never considered to be a soul dwelling in a body, a soul that will one day be set free from the oppression of the body. 
at the death of that body, like a bird released from a cage. The Hebrews were not dualists in their understanding of God's world. From the book Families at the Crossroads by Rodney Clapp, I quote, Following Greek and medieval Christian thought, we often sharply separate the soul and body and emphasize that the individual soul survives death. What's more, we tend to believe the disembodied soul has escaped to heaven to a more pleasant and fully alive existence. Compare with that the popular phrase, he's gone to a better place. Continuing with the quotation, we mistakenly envision the Christian hope as an individual affair, a matter of separate souls taking flight to heaven. But none of this was the case for the ancient Israelites. Martin Luther said, I think that there's not a place in Scripture of more force for the dead who have fallen asleep than Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5. The dead know nothing at all. Understanding nothing of our state and condition, this is an argument against the invocation of saints and the fiction of purgatory. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, in his sermon on the parable of Lazarus, said, I quote, It is indeed very generally supposed that the souls of good men, as soon as they are discharged from the body, go directly to heaven. But this opinion has not the least foundation in the oracles of God. On the contrary, our Lord says to Mary, after the resurrection, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Heaven in the Bible is nowhere the destination of the dying. That's a quotation from J.A.T. Robinson in his book, In the End God, page 104. Shirley Guthrie, in his book, Christian Doctrine, and Dr. Guthrie was professor of systematic theology at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia, also author of Diversity in Faith, Unity in Christ, and his book, from which the following quotation is taken, is known as a classic text. We have to talk about a point of view that from the perspective of Christian faith is falsely optimistic because it does not take death seriously enough. Because the position we are about to criticize and reject is just what many believe, is the foundation of the Christian hope for the future, we reject it not to destroy hope for eternal life, but to defend an authentically biblical Christian hope. We refer here to belief in the immortality of the soul. This doctrine was not taught by the biblical writers themselves, but was common in the pagan Greek and Oriental religions of the ancient world in which the Christian church was born. Some of the earliest Christian theologians were influenced by it, 
They read the Bible in the light of it and introduced it into the thinking of the church. It has been with us ever since. Calvin accepted it, and so did the classical confession of the Reformed churches, the Westminster Confession. According to this doctrine, my body will die, but I myself will not really die. What happens to me at death, then, is that my mortal soul escapes from my mortal body. My body dies, but I myself live on and return to the spiritual realm from which I came and to which I really belong. If we follow the Protestant Reformation in seeking to ground our faith on Scripture alone, we must reject this traditional hope for the future based on the immortality of the soul. Death does not mean that the immortal divine part of us has departed to live on somewhere else. It means that life has left us, that our lives have come to an end, that we are dead and gone. According to Scripture, my soul is just as human, creaturely, finite, and mortal as my body. It is simply the life of my body. We have no hope at all if our hope is in our own inbuilt immortality. Another quotation from Robert Capon in his book Parables and Judgment. I quote, One last theological point while we're on the subject of resurrection and judgment. Perhaps the biggest obstacle to our seeing the judgment of Jesus as the grand sacrament of vindication is our unfortunate preoccupation with the notion of the immortality of the soul. The doctrine is a piece of non-Hebraic philosophical baggage with which we've been stuck ever since the church got out into the wide world of Greek thought. Along with the concomitant idea of immediate life after death, the doctrine of the immortal soul has given us almost nothing but trouble. Both concepts militate against a serious acceptance of the resurrection of the dead, that is, in fact, the sole basis of judgment. Archbishop William Temple, in the Drew Lecture for 1931, said, that conditional immortality is the prevailing doctrine of the New Testament seems to me beyond question as soon as we approach its books free from the Hellenistic assumption that each soul is inherently immortal. There is, however, no necessary contradiction in principle between asserting the full measure of human freedom and believing that in the end the grace of God will win its way with every or most human hearts. I add this, the latter statement is open to some question, but he's certainly right about the pernicious effects of believing in the natural immortality of the soul. Professor Earl Ellis, in his book Christ and the Future in New Testament History, the Platonic view that the essential person 
his soul or spirit, survives physical death has serious implications for Luke's Christology and for his theology of salvation in history. For eschatology, the idea of the immortal soul represents a platonizing of the Christian hope, a redemption from time and matter. Luke, on the contrary, places individual salvation or loss of it at the resurrection in time and matter at the last day. Luke underscores that Jesus was resurrected in the flesh and makes him, quote, the first to rise from the dead, the model on which all entering into glory is to be understood. An anthropological dualism did enter the thought of the patristic church, chiefly, I suppose, with the grandiose synthesis of Christianity and Greek philosophy made by Clement and Origen. It brought into eclipse the early Christian hope of the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, and I add, the kingdom of God on earth. But it did not characterize, that's to say the immortality of the soul idea, did not characterize the Christianity of the New Testament and can be found in Luke only if one reads the texts, as those Christian fathers did, with lenses ground in Athens. While death is not an individual fulfillment of salvation, during death one remains under Christ's lordship and in his care. But while the Christian dead remain in time, they do not count time. The hiatus in their individual being between their death and their resurrection at the last day of this age is, in their consciousness, a tick of the clock. For them, the great and glorious day of Christ's parousia is only a moment into the future. The so-called intermediate state is something that the living experience with respect to the dead, not something the dead experience with respect to the living or to Christ. Those with lenses ground in Athens, numerous in Christian tradition, see a quite different picture. They posit that a part of the person, the soul, is not subject to a cessation of being, and thus is not an element of the natural world, but that at the death of the body, the soul is so-called separated to bodiless bliss, or in a variation on the theme that there is a resurrection at death in which the physical body is exchanged for a spirit body already being formed within, but I add, this would destroy the program and timetable given in 1 Corinthians 15 and many other places. Although they have many traditional roots and attachments, such theologies about the immortal soul, I think, seriously misunderstand Paul's salvation in history eschatology. 
It is because Paul regards the body as the person and the person as the physical body that he insists on the resurrection of the body, placing it at the parousia, or second coming of Christ, in which personal redemption is coupled to and is part of the redemption by transfiguration of the whole physical cosmos. The transformed physical body of the believer will be called forth from the earth by God's almighty creative word at the second coming, no less than were the transformed physical body of Christ and the original lifeless body of the Genesis creation.